Hello, my name is Scott Henze. I'm a sculptor, and I've been sculpting for a long time. Back in the day, I did a lot of work on the Star Trek figure lines for Playmates. And you are listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. Believe it or not, there was a long span of time where I was not that interested in Star Trek. I grew up watching it, but as I grew older and headed into my teens and then later adulthood, I kind of lost some interest in it. Sure, I'd watch it on TV if I saw it, but it wasn't anything I looked at too deeply and nothing I was really seeking out. What would change me from a casual fan into what I've become today may surprise you. No, it wasn't me recognizing and appreciating the socio-political discussions of some episodes or something more mature like that. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. It was really the action figures that got me back into Star Trek. On the last day in the last hours of New York Comic Con 2013, I came upon a vendor looking to dump his inventory so he didn't have to take all these toys back home with him after four long days in the Javits Center. While digging through boxes of X-Men figures and all sorts of other random 90s toys, I came upon loads and loads of Playmates Star Trek action figures. Some characters I had as a kid, others I missed out on because I was not collecting them. Needless to say, I stocked up real hard on that day, and that became my new thing to collect. So much so that on my YouTube channel, Nerd News Today, we have a weekly series called Trek Back Tuesday where we review Star Trek figures from all across the Star Trek universe, whether it's Gloob, Mego, Playmates, Diamond Select, Art Asylum, or whatever else is out there. I am a toy collector, always have been, even when I was a kid. And yeah, I may have taken them out of the package and maybe perhaps ruined their value, but I was always pretty gentle with how I play with my toys. And I also knew that there were plenty that I should leave in box, which I did, and eventually sold to make some money to buy other toys I liked better. I've got a pretty diverse taste in toys too, but Trek figures have always been a part of my collection, even back in the first Galoob action figures from Star Trek The Next Generation. Today, with the wallet of an adult and not the tiny Velcro one of a child, I'm able to afford some higher-end things from Star Trek collectibles, and that led me down the road of buying action figure prototypes and other pre-production things from Star Trek. And that is the road that brought me to today's guest. Scott Henze has spent over 30 years making toys and a lifetime of being a sculptor and an artist. The name may not mean much to you right now, but if you grew up in the 90s, chances are you played with something he made. Scott was responsible for sculpting many familiar toy lines from Playmates, and some not so familiar, including Skeleton Warriors, Toxic Crusaders, Street Sharks, Zorro, and the Coneheads movie line. He's also worked on LJN's WWF line, King Kong toys from the recent movie reboot, Men in Black figures, McDonald's Happy Meal toys, figurines of Nickelodeon and Disney characters, and more recently sculpted minifigures for Super 7 for their He-Man, She-Ra, and Aliens lines. Oh, and there's one other toy line you might remember him from. It's this little tiny underground one called, uh, I think it's something like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah, he did a bunch of those too, starting all the way back with Wave 1. As for Star Trek, Scott began working on that line from day one that Playmates picked up the license. And today, he's going to talk about the making of that line and some stories about many of the figures he and his teammates at his studio, Anglyph Sculpture, created. This episode is also going to be a bit different from our normal ones, as I went out and actually asked several Facebook groups that are interested in Star Trek toys and collectibles to provide some of their own questions to Scott about his time working on Star Trek toys. So if you're one of those folks who submitted something, you may hear your question asked and hopefully answered today. 
I think we definitely got the answers to some questions that have haunted many of us even as a kid. So I guarantee you're going to learn something today about Star Trek toys that you didn't know before. Before we begin, I'd like to remind you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trek Untold. All one word, no spaces. If you want to check out some of our Trek Untold merchandise, you can also do that on our Teespring store, which you can find on teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold, where we've got shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, tote bags, and all sorts of other things available to proudly display how much you like this podcast. If you're having trouble finding the link, just check us out again on social media, and you'll see us posting about it from time to time there as well. You can also support our show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you're already following us or offering us your support, thank you for your help. Most of all, if you can't support us financially, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to the show. This helps more people find out about the show and helps spread awareness of Trek Untold. I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D printed Star Trek inspired products for toys and people, but you'll hear more about them a little bit later on. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. Affirmative. Initiating program. And welcome back to Trek Untold, and we are joined now by an artist who has shaped many of our childhoods, literally because his hands shaped so many of the action figures we grew up playing with mine included. He's the main man behind Anaglyph Sculpture, and he's been working on toys for over 30 years, including the Playmate Star Trek line that we're going to focus on today. And his name is Scott Henze. Scott, how are you today? Hello, how are you? Hello, everybody. Yes, it's really exciting to talk to you. I've been, you know, unbeknownst to me, you've been playing with toys that you have been creating for years. And, uh, you know, it's a real treat for me. I'm a big, big toy fan. Uh, I actually own a lot of Star Trek prototypes, in fact. And so I'm glad to be able to talk to you, get some more information about what you do and all of your work on Star Trek stuff. So, uh, yeah, this is going to be a real pleasure today. Great, thanks. Yeah, I'm happy to talk to you about it. I'm a sculptor, you know. I'm not just a toy sculptor. Yes. I've also done a lot of giftware, a lot of Happy Meals. You know, whatever they need, I'll sculpt for them. <laughs> but I'm a toy guy at heart. That's that's definitely where my interests lie. So I'm going to give you the first question we ask all of our guests, typically on Trek Untold, and that is, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? Well, I'm an old guy, so I used to watch the original show when it first came out in fact i would force my family to watch it with me <laughs> uh so that was certainly my earliest memories and I, I can remember carving myself a couple of phasers you know in a communicator out of wood or foam or something back then but that was just for me i wasn't selling them to anybody back then <laughs> so uh yeah. now where did you grow up exactly and can you tell us who your parents were and what they did wow okay deep cuts well, on the show <laughs> my uh dad worked for the Airlines, he was a mechanic and then an inspector at Continental Airlines. I don't think they have Continental Airlines anymore. No, I think that's, that's long gone. Yeah. And we lived in a place called Westchester, which is close to Marina Del Rey, uh, by the Los Angeles airport. I was born in Culver City, though, which is a few miles north of that. But it sounds better to say Culver City than Los Angeles. Let's see. Dad worked for the airlines. He was a Marine, bought a house on the GI Bill for $8,000 in what was then the suburbs close to the San Diego freeway. You know, when they, sh when they sh show movies and they use that big donut, yep, like yep. in Iron Man where he was in the big donut. Okay, so I grew up about two blocks from there. Oh, nice. Was that it big was donut called, always there? It was called the big donut back then. What? Yeah, the big, oh, it's called wow. Randy's now, but it used to be called the big donut. And a lot of my friends would work there, you know, when I got older. So a lot of free donuts. You know? <laughs> uh, okay, I went to Westchester High, like I said. Uh, airport Junior High used to have airplanes landing 
almost in the backyard, so they had to close that and move us to a different junior high. Yeah, I don't think that would fly today. <sighs> no. Unintended. No. In fact, they had to close a whole lot of houses that were under the exit, uh, you know, where the planes take off. So now there was just this big area of uh, empty houses we call the island when I was in high school. So if we used to go over to the island and ransack one of those houses that had been purchased by the airport. And they took them all down, of course. Now it's just a big empty field. So how did you first discover sculpting and artwork? Well, there's a glib story that goes with that, and there's a real story. The, the glib one is that I, uh, uh, in high school, I signed up for life sciences classes. You know, I wanted to be an oceanographer or uh, study insects or something like that. But the classes got harder and harder. And the art classes were easy, and there were lots of girls in the art classes. So I just switched over to art. I ended up continuing to do that because it was it came naturally, but I never thought of myself as an artist back then. It was just, I did that when I wasn't doing the other things. By the time I got to high school, I was thoroughly entrenched in the art world, and I was planning to go to illustration school or something like that after high school. But right after high school, I got a job at a uh, place that was close to my home that made garden statuary. And they hired me because I uh, knew my colors in Spanish so I could direct the painters, you know, more mas azul, por favor, you know, that's all I knew, but that's what we were doing. And at some point I said, hey, I could sculpt this better than whoever's sculpting this for you. And they took me up on it. So I did garden statuary for a couple of years, you know, piecework kind of thing. Mostly animals with uh, funny animals with tennis shoes on. If anybody remembers the uh, house plant fad that happened in the late 70s. Mostly, you guys aren't going to remember that. But there were actually house plant stores that you would, that would specialize in selling house plants. And so we were making pots for them as well mm, as okay. statues. Anyway, at some point, uh, someone called me and said, hey, I see in the newspaper here that uh, there's a toy company in Carson, which is south of Los Angeles there. And they're looking for somebody who can sculpt cartoon characters. And I thought, well, that's me. So that's when I got my first and only job. The only job I ever actually had was I was went down to Tony Toys and uh, took a job as a staff sculptor. The best job I ever had. All I had to do was sculpt, you know. And I was there for three years. When I first started working at Tony, they were doing the Tron line. Mm, that's a great line and, of fingers. Uh, get along. Yeah, it was great. I I didn't work on it. I think I made some molds or something. But Tony was a Japanese company, so I was actually working for Tokyo, but we we're the the North American arm of Tokyo. But they were also doing manufacturing in L.A. Uh, anyhow, three years later, uh, Coleco bought Tomy North America with their Cabbage Patch doll money and uh, disbanded the R&D because they didn't need us. They had their own. So I went freelance. Um, a friend of mine, because sculpting was just becoming very popular then. That would have been in the, I don't know, 80, 81. We went to Toys R Us back then. There would be four or five aisles of action figure lines. I miss those days. Yeah, me too. So there was a lot of sculpture work and not very many sculptors, which was a great place to be. So then after that, I, uh, a friend of mine who had left Tommy and gone to Playmates called and said, they were doing a preschool line called the Huff and Puffs. You know, do you want to do some of the sculpture? And I said, yes, of course. When I finished that and I went in to uh, uh, deliver those, I was having to be standing there and one of the owners says, hey, you're a sculptor, right? No, actually, I think I remember him saying, you're a sculptor guy, right? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, I'm a sculptor guy. They said, well, we're thinking about doing this action figure line. Do you want to do some of that? And I said, oh, sure. And so that's when they told me about the Ninja Turtles. 
And I was familiar with the underground comic, the Ninja Turtles. Mm, yes. Which really wasn't for kids. It was a satire. Not at all for uh, kids, no, sir. <laughs> yeah, and it was kind of uh, rustically drawn. You know, it wasn't classically drawn. It was kind of rustic. And it was black and white. So it only appe- appealed to, you know, the fringe groups like you and me. Uh, so I thought to myself, well, <laughs> yeah, right. This will never work. Mm-mm. But of course, I, as I said, I was an art whore. So I just said, yeah, sure. Great idea. Let's do it. So before we start talking about turtles and especially Trek, of course, I want to ask you about one other line. I believe you did some sculpts on the WWF LJN line, and I believe you were involved in right. the Ted Arcidi figure, Johnny Valiant, and you've got a pick on your website of uh, another wrestler who you, you'd named Western wrestler. I'm not sure who that is either. I, I want to say it's Stan Hansen, but I don't think the timelines match up. Maybe someone else out there knows. But uh, either way, can you tell us uh, a bit about working on the WWF line with LJN? Well, sort of. Um, at that time, I was just starting sculpture uh and figuring out how to do it all and i wasn't working directly for the company back then i was taking a lot of times the sculptors would get you know you you would just take all the work they gave you and if you couldn't do it you would find a sculptor friend to do it so i was actually helping another studio i did the sculpture and then turned it into them and then they turned it in it wasn't a secret it was just the way we were getting it done but yeah those pieces were something because not only were they facial likenesses but they were body likenesses you had to have the guy's musculature right and you couldn't just do a body. And the costuming, of course, that's fun. Remember, there was a guy with a headband and sunglasses. And yeah, that's like the Johnny Valiant figure. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then uh, there was a guy. There was a guy with a Hawaiian shirt on. Uh, Lou Albano, probably. Mm, I don't remember their names. <laughs> Pretty sure it's anyway, probably they Lou. were. They were big. Yeah. They were very rarely do anything that big and solid too. Back then, they could afford to do a solid vinyl, injected vinyl piece like that. They couldn't do that nowadays. It's just too expensive. But the, yeah, so I don't have too much to add there. I just did them and turned them in. They, uh, I don't think they would give us a drawing. They would give us a photo of a guy. And then I had to go to the liquor store and find wrestling magazines to get uh, get referenced to figure out what the guy actually looked like. So they gave you no reference material, no suggestions for a pose. It was just all up to the artist. Not and that sculptors. I can, no, not that I can remember. I think I think they did give us suggestions for poses. I think there was a sketch for the pose without the details of the guy. In. It was all on us. Of course, you know, it's a lot easier just to hit images on Google now, and you got all the reference you need. But, no, that was part of the job, you know. So I watched a few videos online about your work, and I've seen that the majority of stuff you did for uh, Trek, and I'm sure for most of your career, has been in wax and not clay. So I'm curious, uh, is that the industry standard to make figures? And uh, if so, why is it wax over clay? Well, it's both. Uh, By that, I mean I start them in clay. Mm-hmm. To get the gestures and the volumes and the poses and you know the base, all the basic masses in, uh, because it goes faster in clay because you can change your mind and try it this way and try it that way, you know, until you like it. And then I send JPEGs to the client, and then when they like what they see, then I make a mold, and, I, and then I cast the wax, and then I finish it in the wax. So the wax is so now the poses and volumes are all correct. And I can just polish the surfaces and outline things and sharpen things, put in hair patterns and you know, shoelaces and stuff in wax. So the clay is for one thing and wax is for refining that thing. And then I make another molding cast to resin patterns. Every once in a while, I'll finish something in clay just because it calls for it. There's a manufacturer who wanted me to do a shrunken head (laughs) for his his line of shrunken heads, you know. I'm like, yeah, sure, fine. So he sent me a drawing and I did it in clay. And I thought, it really makes no no point to go to wax on this piece because I don't want it shiny and perfect. It's a shrunken head. So I finished it in clay. 
or when I used to do a lot of peanuts, uh, Charlie Brown peanuts, the Snoopies of that line were really small. I mean, two inches tall. So I just start them in wax. But if you're going to start in wax, you have to really know where you're going. You can't do a lot of experimenting because it's rigid once you get there. You know? It seems like it's more of a uh, subtractive medium as opposed to an additive medium. Like, I guess with clay, it's a little bit easier to add things to it. Wax, it's a little bit more uh, definitive, I guess. You kind of have to move with the wax a little well, bit you more. Well, could, you could look at it that way. But if you're going to make a living at this, you have to be able to do it at a certain pace. Hmm. So you're, you can add wax at what you add you want to keep. In other words, you don't want to build it up really big and then carve it down because that's going to take you time. You want to get right to the shape you want and then save the eyebrows for wax and stuff. So it's kind of both subtracting and adding. But I understand what your point is, and I, and I get it. The thing about wax is that if I want to add a little uh, spot, I can just melt a little spot onto, like it's, you know, adding an arm or something, I can just melt it on. And it's fused, properly welded. Any other medium, you're gonna, it's going to drop off because it's not fused. You can do it with clay, but you have to make a point of mixing the shapes, mixing the surfaces. Or like I said, it'll just fall apart while you're working, especially if the thing is small, mm. especially if you change your mind a lot. And with the clay, I don't want to get too into this. It is my life, so all you got to do is start me. But with the clay, uh, I have a crock pot, and I can put the piece in the crock pot on way low, and it'll warm it up, and then I can bend it around. And then the clay will harden and get really hard, so then I can't bend it around. So you can go back and forth that way until you're in love with the shape. That's the idea of the clay. Yeah, I've got plenty more technical questions about this kind of stuff because I'm also really into the figure-making process. And I think our listeners probably not, don't necessarily know a lot about it either. So I think it's, it's really fascinating stuff to hear about. Oh, well, great. Then you just stop me if I go on too far, but that's <laughs> great. The, you said industry standard. Back then, on the one hand, yes, that was the industry standard. On the other hand, there was no standard. We were all just making it up. Mm. I remember making my molds. And I mean, I started with making silicone molds at Tomy. Before that, I was using latex molds, which was you paint on the latex and then you make a plaster brace and then you're casting in that. But latex is, it's hard to cast things in latex because everything sticks to it, you know, except, you know, gypsum or something. But uh, silicone, of course, nothing is supposed to stick to it. Mm. So as soon as I swapped to that, it made choices a lot easier. In the same mold, I could make a urethane and a wax. You know, um, and the mold and the rubber I'm using now, GI 1000. I get it from Circle K. It, you don't need to worry about the clay. It doesn't. It doesn't inhibit. It's going off. You know, if you use the wrong clay with other silicones, it'll turn to goop, which is disappointing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not known to goop. I actually was uh, watching one of the videos that you did that's on YouTube uh, from Make Makezine, I believe it is. And you've got a story yeah. about there of, uh, I guess we can call it the fragility of wax and why wax and heat don't necessarily mix even when you've got a finished wax product. Do you remember that story about the coffee cup? Yeah, I remember that. It was very traumatic. Yeah, please. Please um, tell listeners who haven't heard that story yet. It's, uh, oh, that, that traumatized to me, too. To I felt this. your pain. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, wax is, of course, wax. It melts. And in a fairly low temperature, too. Not like candle wax, because I have, uh, I have talc and other kinds of wax mixed in so you can carve it and polish it and it doesn't just disappear or turn to sludge because you're holding it you know so it's fairly stable but it's still wax and back then nowadays i just send a photograph to who i'm working for but back then we would have to take the final wax sculpture before making the final mold and go to the meeting in this case it was a meeting in century city with uh, a bunch of guys from hong kong and of course all the guys from mcdonald's and 
uh, other people. There's like 15 people at their table. I'm the only one that's really doing any work, and they're all just looking at me, you know, sculptor guy. <laughs> anyway, the guy sitting next to me is from Hong Kong, and I picked up the, I was, I remember, I remember like I was yesterday, uh, it was Flower the Skunk from the Bambi Happy Meal, which was my very first Happy Meal. And uh, he picks up the wax. I didn't invite him to pick up the wax, but he did. And he's looking at it, and he goes, oh, yeah, it looks pretty. And then he drops it, whoops, into his coffee cup with his hot coffee. <laughs> oh. uh, it was, I remember just, you know, it was just uh, impulsive, I guess, or instinctual. I just reached in the coffee cup and grabbed it back, you know. I felt like uh, I felt like Sean Connery in Outland, you know, where he chases a guy in and the guy throws the drugs in the boiling water and he reaches his hand in there and get it well that was me i was shine coming for a second <laughs> but of course pulling it out the surface was all already affected and my fingerprints left big you know kind of deflowered my flower if you will so yeah that was sad i had to go do that again and you know you brought up what, uh, that ljn going back to the ljn yeah uh, wrestlers i you brought up that guy with the cowboy hat on yeah and for some reason it just came back to me. I remember taking it to the sculptor that I was working for, and he was examining it and saying, oh, yes, this looks very beautiful, or whatever he was saying. He was holding the figure. <laughs> the figure slips out of his hands, drops onto the table, lands on top of the guy's cowboy hat and branding iron. This is all in fragile wax. It just kind of shatters and bounces all over the room. <sighs> I think I got paid twice for that piece, though. <laughs> I'd hope so, yeah. I'm trying to figure out who that is, too, because like, the only person I can think of with a cowboy hat and branding iron would have been Terry Funk. Maybe Stan Hansen had that briefly in his time in WWF, but, uh, you know, I'm sure hopefully... I remember he, was, he had no shirt on, and he was wearing chaps. Yeah, that, there's like a few guys who did that. It's it's wrestling, you know, so you can imagine there's plenty of guys wearing no shirts and chaps, uh, but... Oh, well. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you <laughs> So before we start talking Trek, I want to mention that, of course, you worked on many lines during your time at Playmates in particular... Uh, including the Toxic Crusaders, Skeleton Warriors, the Coneheads movie line. But we can't have this discussion today and not discuss Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles a little bit more in depth, as we are kind of alluding to earlier. So uh, you kind of mentioned how you got started working on that line, but can you tell us uh, which characters you worked on? Well, when I went in there and they offered me the line work, they were just in the process of deciding what it should look like and how big it should be and how it should look and everything. Uh, so I said, well, I'll help you with that part of the development. And I was working with this fella. Uh, and we were talking about what we want to do, and we were trying to stay real close to the artwork in the comic to start with. And then that fellow went over to Mattel to work on something else. And the guy who was who I had known from Tommy came to Playmates. So there was a kind of a art director shift right in the center of the development stage. So we went from basically He-Man to something that looked more like the turtles that they finished today and somebody else did the turtles and i said i want to do the bad guys because they look more interesting to me so i worked on the uh, foot soldier and the shredder and you know the pig guy and the rhino guy uh, bebop rocksteady I did, yeah i ended up not doing the final work on the rhino guy i did a, uh, a kind of a preliminary study on the rhino guy and they took that and they gave it to a different sculptor and then they gave me those other three it's just i you know you don't question it you just say yeah sure whatever you want to pay me to do so uh we were working on the shredder and in the comic he's a tall kind of slenderish guy and he towers over everybody and he's you know very imposing and so that's the way we did him and then marketing said oh no they've all got to fit on the blister card <laughs> so they can only be x y z tall and they, right they're measuring he-man because he-man was such a successful thing at that time so we just bent him over <laughs> instead of making him smaller. 
just ban him over. That's why he had that weird pose to start with. Yeah, it's always such a bizarre <laughs> pose, but it looks nice still. It's a good looking figure, and it's very memorable because of that pose. Yeah, no, it, it kind of, yeah, it kind of, it's kind of organic because we didn't draw him out that way until we suddenly had that parameter. The same thing with the foot soldier, and since he was so skinny, it kind of worked with him bending over like that. And then when it came to painting them, as a side note, I wasn't in charge of that. I was just sculpting. But I remember the painter choosing the colors uh, because they were kind of already available. <laughs> we were using um, paint called cell vinyl, which is an acrylic paint with a cell with a vinyl binder. It allows it to be flexible. And that's what they used to use when they hand-painted cells for cartoons, cell vinyl. And you would order it in kind of uh, tubes, squeeze tubes, uh, but maybe it would be more liquid, like maybe tempera, something like that. Mm. Uh, and it came in a, a vast uh, number of already mixed colors. So, you know, you're not, you could order it in any color you wanted and any volume you wanted. So we were trying to find pictures, colors that they already had. <laughs> and so, uh, so the foot shelter is basically middle blue. You know, they were, but the palettes came out fine because they're kind of already designed. So, so that worked. Um, then after that, uh, when they had this giant hit on their hands, basically it was kind of drop everything, all hands on deck, make as many turtle items as you can. And so that's when I hired some more help uh, so that I could just sculpt and other people could mold and cast for me. And then I found a couple of sculptors to help. Uh, so I ended up with like 15 people. We're all cranking these turtles out. And my studio was kind of everybody does everything. So everybody would hand pieces around. I'd, I'd look over the work at the end of the day, and if somebody's work was going in the wrong direction, I might take it and work on it myself or hand it to somebody else. If you're, if you're directing a sculptor and you don't like what he's doing, or she, if you don't like the way the work looks and you say, ah, forget it, it's too tall, cut it down, and make the head bigger. I mean, those are important changes. They're hard to do changes. And if you give that direction to the sculptor who did the work, they're going to change little things around the edges because it's their work and they don't want to mess it up. Of course. You take it from them, you hand it to somebody else who's never, never worked on it before, and you say, cut this thing down, they'll do it, you know? <laughs> so that was one of the big advantages of having a, a big sculpture group. So was this around the time that you started your Anglyph Sculpture Studio officially as a business? Yeah, yeah. No, well, yeah, Tony, remember when Coleco bought Tony, they gave us seven, eight months advance notice and they freed us up to look for work while we were finishing up our stint there. So I was, I hit the ground running the day I left Tomi, I was in English sculpture. Um, and then I kept contact with everybody I'd met at the R&D. So if I didn't know somebody immediately to do a certain job, I could kind of go to that network and find it. I mean, I'm a good sculptor, I'm a good model maker and a mold maker, but I can't paint. And I've tried. <laughs> Any color I mix, no matter what color I'm trying to match, it turns brown. You know, it's just either you can paint or you can't, I guess. And I don't. So one of the first things I did was hire a painter. And this girl came from Mattel and she had been like a Barbie eyeball painter, which is oh, like tough job. the top of the top. Yeah. She could do some things that were just astounding, matching colors and painting eye pupils and everything. So doing, doing action figures was easy for her. So that kind of lifted that weight off of me so I could just concentrate on the, the art. And then by the end of the time there, for two or three years, I was so busy that I was mostly just going to meetings. I wasn't doing a lot of sculpture. I was just going to meetings and directing everybody else and fixing things that broke, you know. So after a while of that, I got annoyed. 
I had to go back to doing the sculpture again. But, but the idea was everything we were doing was supposed to look like it was done by the same guy because the clients want to, you know, they want to have a, they want to be able to predict what they're going to get. So, you know, I was forcing everybody to do things the way I do things, which is not really my nature. My nature is kind of a, everybody do what you want, leave me alone kind of thing. But that was the job. So most of the stuff that came from my studio all looked like it was done by me. A hundred years later, I ended up, uh, after 9-11, you know, everything changed. So I went back to doing all the sculpture myself. Turns out I'm much happier that way. So I was looking through like all of the pictures that are on the Anaglyph Sculpture website, and I see there's lots of little play sets and vehicles as well as the figures for the turtles. But uh, oh, yeah. there's, there's one that's really kind of neat. That's like, I think it's the Killer Bee piece that you did. I think it's a vehicle, right? Right. Yeah, that, that's a pretty unique piece to sculpt on. That's a kind of big, uh, heavily articulated character that I imagine doesn't stand up very well while you're working on it, too. Those were some of those where, by the time, I mean, that's probably, what, third or fourth year or something. Yeah. Uh, by that time, we were pretty acquainted with the turtles. We knew what they were about. And the turtles started out as, you know, pretty big figures, really, I mean, compared to, like, G.I. Joe or something. So if you want to make a vehicle for it, it has to be pretty big. So, um, you know, there were a lot of motorcycles and that kind of thing because you could make them smaller. But then at some point we did a big giant Cadillac. They all fit in. I love that Cadillac. Yeah, that was for the uh, those little Cadillac futuristic the alien dudes, whatever their names were. Oh, the neutrinos. Yeah. Yes, neutrinos. Yeah. Well, we were talking about the big bugs. Yeah, that was the, the, uh, the, the army ants. The thing about things. that, from a sculpture sculptor standpoint, every toy company that I'm working for has kind of a different style. And uh, like Hasbro, well, Kenner or even uh, Galoob were more engineer-run companies, so they would send you view drawings and exploded views and stuff, whatever they wanted. And Kenner would would just be really picky about what they gave you. Playmates, on the other hand, since we all kind of started out together, I mean, they were doing lots of toys before I got there, but um, we all kind of learned it together. So there was a shorthand, and there was kind of this urgency in the air to do as much as you could because we had a winning hand, and we didn't know how long it would last, you know. And because Playmates is a Chinese-owned company. So they're, the Chinese kind of use uh, the Americans as kind of the, get the licensing and make the prototype and let us worry about the production questions. So I would ask them, hey, what's the material we're going to use here? Which is, you know, if it's styrene, I draft it in one way. If it's, if it's soft vinyl, it's another. If it's rotovinyl, it's a third. You know, what's it going to be? And they would just say, ah, don't worry about it. Just, just <laughs> sculpt a nice killer bee and make molds and send it in. So I said, okay, boss. So I did that, turned it in. And if you saw the piece, some of them, I mean, have like a two and a half inch cross section. It's just a solid B, you know? And Hong Kong produced a thing in solid vinyl, just like those LJM pieces. Mm, yeah. Solid vinyl. It's still always stunned me. Never had to do it that way. Had to cost a lot more. That's all I meant about the piece. Is that the, they didn't really have an art department, per se, at Playmates at some point. At some point they did, but they were kind of just farming all that out to me and to some of the other people. So I'm kind of curious, since you've worked on Star Trek figures and Turtles, was your studio responsible for the Ninja Turtle Star Trek crossover figures? Um, I don't think so. I think, I think I remember the ones you're talking about, but no, that would have been Varner. Varner Studios, yeah. Would be, yeah. At some point, well, at the very beginning point, Varner and I were splitting 90% of the work. They, would, they gave out some of the other ones, some of the little pieces to other sculptors just to make, you know, spread the love, you know. But we were mostly splitting it. And he was doing most of the turtles because he started doing the turtles, and I was doing most of the turtle bad guys because that's the way it started. Uh, but at some point, the Playmates started coming up with other lines to do, like uh, Ear from Jim and Toxie and 
all of that. So we, we would divide those up. Point is, I did some and others I didn't do. Some lines, though, I did do the whole thing. Like uh, I did all the cone heads um, and I did all the skeletons for the skeleton warriors. Those really things. sickly detailed figures, too. I gotta, I've always loved those toys. The Skeletal Warriors were a real underrated line. Oh, yeah, thanks. Well, you know, when those, that line came out, it was going to be the next Turtles. They were, it was a big deal. And they had a TV show, too. But, uh, you know, lots of reasons why. I still maintain that they were too expensive. I mean, they were 12 13 bucks, I think. The Turtles were three ninety nine. Yeah. So, I think uh, the figures were way better like, than the cartoon. Also, I remember watching the cartoon being like, whatever. But when I saw the toys for the first time, I was like, oh, my God, these are pieces of art. I mean, they're, oh, they're, well, they still hold yeah, up. They're the, amazing um, works. We did knock ourselves out on the toy. I mean, on the... Uh, the way the bones looked and the articulation and stuff. I had a, a full model shop, so I had, you know, two or three guys back there that were running the power tools, you know, lathes and mills and stuff, making internal structures and doing little teeny things, which I don't do. <laughs> I would stand by the door and shout, is it done yet? I'm not going near those tools. <laughs> it's the joys of management. And a lot, yeah, right. And a lot of the, the vehicles were like that, too. I mean, a lot of the vehicles, my model shop would build and then the sculptors would decorate kind of thing. Like uh, when we're doing the Toxic Crusader pieces, that line was just painful in every way. Oh, you really? Really can't really tell by looking at it, but with the Toxic Crusaders, like, uh, I forget the guy's name, but Hatchet Head or something, Bonehead, I think. Oh, yeah, he, had a, he had a, a motorcycle that he was riding. So you had to design the motorcycle. Then you had to build the motorcycle. Then you had to cover the whole thing with drippy sludge. Mm-hmm. You know, it's supposed to look like toxy slime, but that all had to be sculpted. Every drip had to be carved. I mean, there's no other way to do it. You couldn't, it, it was supposed to look like somebody just threw something on it and it just froze, drippy. Oh, and then on top of that, the color palette was radiant colors. It was all the super, you know, they were super bright neon colors of the 90s. Orange. Yeah, and your eyes would just throb at the end of the day while you were <laughs> painting this stuff. I remember we would put it, we had a place out front. We were really busy at the time, so I set up a table out front, the front door, to let some of these things dry in the sun, because the radiant paint on top of everything else didn't dry right. And my neighbors, it was a, one of those business parks, my neighbor from across the way came over and complained. <laughs> she goes, those colors are too obnoxious, I can't, you can't, can't leave them there. Of course, you know, that's just the way people are. I just remember thinking, yeah, I'm not the only one who's being injured by this stupid line. We also did Zorro. It was, I think I did a lot of good work there that they nobody really saw. Our cone heads, for that matter, it opened on the uh, on the clearance aisle. Mm, yeah, it's unfortunate because I've seen those sculpts today, and they uh, you know they still are not exactly the most collectible figures, but the sculpts are like pretty much perfect representations of everybody that's in that movie. Yeah, well, thanks. I did uh, a pretty good uh, Jane Curtin, I think, and uh, um, I, I like the Beldar. That was back when they would send you a like a packet of uh, photos from the. On the two, movie shoot, so I could do the, so I could do a good job on the costumes. They did that a lot with Star Trek too. So I have this big file of, you know, twenty-eight slides of a phaser or something. You know, I don't know what to do with it. Yeah, I'm definitely going to ask you a lot more about likenesses with the actors with Star Trek stuff. But I'm actually curious about with the Coneheads. Did you have any interactions with Dan Aykroyd or Jane Curtin or any of their people who represent them uh, while working on trying to get oh, the likenesses down? That would be cool. But no, yeah, I didn't. <laughs> generally speaking, that would be a pretty rare thing. Well, I was here's one thing when I was working on the start when I first started doing the Star Trek. One of the first ones I was working on was Worf, and I called up my point person. I said, you know, I really want to get Worf's 
forehead bumps down correctly. And it's really hard to tell from all these, you know, fuzzy photos you've been sending me. Is there something else you can do? And the, I said, well, yeah, why don't you come down to the set and look at the, at the sculpture here? And the, the makeup guy will show you the makeup stuff. And I'm like, yeah, cool. So I go down there. And Westmore himself comes out to meet me. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that was pretty cool. And then he, uh, he loans me a bunch of uh, prosthetic pieces, including Worf's forehead. And I took them back to the shop and, you know, sculpted them, tried to get them to be good representations. And then I pretended to forget to take them back. <laughs> uh, but they remembered. They oh. called me up. They said, they said, you know, you got to bring that stuff back, right? And I'm like, oh, well, okay. It's a good try. I was going to steal them. I was just going to try and forget to have them. But uh, yeah, I took them back. It's all right. We've all have done the same. It's perfectly acceptable. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, like I said, didn't outright steal them. I was just hoping the planets would align. But yeah, so that was fun. But no, no, generally speaking, it didn't really have much contact directly with any actors. In fact, it would be rare that I would even hear what the actual actors said. The uh, LJN pieces I do remember hearing, because the waxes came back from the meeting broken. Yeah. What I heard was that the, the wrestlers had been there, and they were very, got rough with them and broke them. <laughs> I guess playing with them. So that, but that figures with wrestlers, right? Yeah, well, at least that means they like them if they're playing with them, right? <laughs> yeah, well, that's, you know, I should have been more flattered. <laughs> Oh, I was going to say, when I was doing Men in Black, yes. this is interesting. We did, that's Will Smith and uh, Tommy Lee Jones, right? We did the figures, and I kind of idealized their faces to make them look as pretty as possible and still look like the person. I sent them off, and they came back, and both Will and Tommy said the same thing. He said, he looks great, but you got to make them look more like us. <laughs> you know, Will was saying, you got to make my ears bigger. Uh, <laughs> and then Tommy Lee Jones says, where are the crags? My face has crags. Everybody knows that. <laughs> So I kind of uglied him up and sent him back, and they approved him. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props, or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D-printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or a part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. If you find yourself listening to your favorite podcast and wondering what microphone they use or how they do their editing, or if you watch a YouTube video and you wonder, what camera is that? Or going one step further, if you're watching Twitch and you're wondering how your favorite Twitch streamer built their rig and if you can do the same, then Toys and Tech of the Trade is for you. Toys and Tech of the Trade is an interview series where we sit down with content creators, entrepreneurs, and discuss the gadgets and gear that they use to create their content and run their businesses. 
We use toys in a broad sense, meaning the stuff that just puts a smile on your face, whether it's action figures to something a little bit more complex like musical instruments, cars. You'd be surprised what people consider their toys. Toys and Tech of the Trade can be found on all major podcast providers, including iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and of course, Spotify. Feel free to visit us at RageWorksNetwork.com to check us out. We now return to Trek Untold. So, Scott, yeah, we've talked a little bit about some Star Trek stuff, but I want to dive in now head first, get real deep into the Trek stuff. So talk to us about how you got put on board for the Trek figures, and uh, I believe you worked on the very first wave as well, right? Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I was working for Playmates. I mean, I was freelancing this whole time. I was never on staff. But I was working for Playmates doing Turtles and other stuff. And then they said, we're going to license Star Trek now. And I was thrilled, being a Star Trek fan anyway. So I said, this will be great. Um... Immediately, I started uh, can, uh, lobbying for the Gorn and the Mugato and some of those aliens, you know, the blue guy, the Andromedan and all that. And he said, no, we're, we're going to start with Next Generation. And I was like, oh, that's too bad. Okay, let's do Next Generation. Then. So they said, well, let's do it a little different. I don't know whose idea it was. Probably not mine. But he said, let's do it a little different. Let's put them in kind of extreme uh, poses, stances, instead of just laying there like a dead person, like most action figures, because you try to be a universal pose. Let's do a real big step or something extreme. And I said, sure. And then I said, okay, well, what do you think that would look like? So I sculpted as a study. The first one was a Ferengi, and he's taking a big step, and he's got one arm out and one arm back, and he's holding a whip, and he's about to whip the guy. Remember, the Ferengis used to have whips. If the, yeah, just for the first season. After that, they disappeared, but they did have those laser whip things. That's in the pilot, yeah. Yeah. I did that, and a big extreme step and everything. And everybody loved it. And I said, okay, well, now let's you know, redo it a little bit. Because it was a solid piece. It didn't have any armature inside. It wasn't articulated. You know, Arms and legs didn't move. It was just a study piece. And then they said, and I think there's a photo of it on my website. Yes. Anyway, they said, no, no, we like this. Just cut it up. We'll use it just like this. Now, if you, if you sculpt a figure... To look the way you want it to look, that's very cool, especially if it's an interesting pose. But if you actually cut it up and start measuring, you're going to find that the left foot isn't the same size as the right foot, and the right arm isn't the same length as the left arm, because it didn't need to be before. It just needed to look right. It didn't actually have to be right. But if you've got a, an action figure, you can take the arms and legs off. I mean, maybe I make too big of a deal out of it, but I try to make it as symmetrical as a real human, you know? So that kind of annoyed me. Plus... It looked really good in one pose, and then every other pose looked like he'd just been hit by a bus. Mm, yes. So, but that, okay, all that said, though, I hasten to say, kids don't care about that. The kids do not care about that. They just want to play with the thing. So, in reality, I, I did fine. I just wasn't, I just didn't like doing it backwards like that. I like to plan it just from the start, you know. But anyway, we did the whole first line like that, kind of extreme poses and stuff. And it looked good on the shelf, and they sold those bazillion of them. But they couldn't get him to sit down, right? So they couldn't yeah, put him was, in vehicle. Yeah, we put actually yeah. uh, in a lot of different Facebook groups like for Star Trek toy collectors. I actually asked for some questions to them, and uh, you just answered one of them, in fact. And a lot of them also had asked, you know, why the legs were in that weird kind of V shape once you tried to sit them down. Yeah, the legs just splay. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why. Because we, it's kind of a turtles thing again. They didn't really plan on having a giant hit like that. I mean, I'm sure they hoped for it, but they didn't really look down the road and say, if it was a big giant hit, you know, what would we do? And the fact is, if they had, and then they had done it in a different way, 
to have the legs with a 90-degree angle so they swing straight forward or something like other action figure lines. It might not have been the hit. might not have been the hit that they thought because it was the way they looked going in. So I don't know who's wise and who's not. I don't know. But that's why. But eventually they did add the thigh cuts to it, then they could actually sit down on things. So problem was eventually solved. It just took a few years to figure it out. Yeah, sure. Well, right. At some point they knew they could keep selling the old figures and add new figures. Because, of course, the subject matter was endless with these TV shows. And then when they did get around to doing the original guys, that's when I got to do the Gorn and the Mugato. And the other aliens, which are, you know, more fun. The fact is, the Star Trek guys, I mean, I love them all, but they're... The crew members are all basically just guys in pajamas. Mm, yeah, that's true. And, you, and you, so you're trying to, how do you make this interesting enough for somebody to want to buy? I mean, there are going to be people who are going to buy it just because they collect or because they're Star Trek fans. But you also have to appeal to somebody who, this might be the first one they're seeing and you want them to buy them and they've got to be interesting. So, yeah, and a lot of them were just the guys in the suits, like I say. But I always did everything from scratch. I didn't keep reusing the same body over and over. Even though it was real similar, <laughs> I probably could have used the same body. Um, I mostly didn't. Same thing with the turtles. When at some point I complained, it was my idea, of course, that I would do bad guys and not turtles. But at some point I complained, I want to do some bad, uh, some turtles, so they gave me some. And at that point we were down to this, you know, weird. Let's do that. Anything that we can think of, you do a clown turtle or a cowboy turtle or astronaut turtles or you know on uh, or star trek turtles even (laughs) or star trek turtles yeah yeah or the the universal monster turtles were fun that was uh, you worked on those also uh i did i don't think i i might have done one or two of them i don't think so though i the thing what can this is why i'm confused my paint staff was much stronger than anybody else's paint staff so a lot of the stuff that that came through the studio, I didn't sculpt. I, we just painted it. And we were going so fast back then that my old man brain mixes them all up. <laughs> so there, I, I, I'm thinking about the Universal Monsters thinking, and I think if I had sculpted them, I'd remember because they were uh, they were so cool. Yeah, those were very, very good figures. So when it came time to actually work on these sculpts for Star Trek figures, though, did Paramount send you like reference material, or was it again like those wrestling toys where you kind of had to go on your own and look for stuff? They, they did send me... Um, yeah, they would send me uh, stills of uh, costumes and stills of, uh, of the outfits that the bad guys would wear, and then the uh, weapons and stuff, the tricorders and stuff. They would send me pictures of that. But I was I was getting very few actual you know, shots from on the set or you know anything interesting. Put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I was actually wondering about that too because I imagine in some cases you might be making a character who hasn't even shown up in the series yet. So did they ever make you sign any non-disclosure agreements to, if, if there was anything like that? For Star Trek, there were no uh, non-disclosures. And I'm trying to think now, but I don't think there was any figure that we did for them that hadn't already been aired. We weren't working on anything as it was happening. It was already, there was such a backlog of stuff. That's true, yeah. That we never had that to deal with. We were never working on the current... Uh, season of anything. I mean, unlike when I was doing Happy Meals, not to change the subject, but when I was doing Happy Meals, we were always working on something that was in development. We were working on Little Mermaid. You know, I'm working 15 months out, and the Little Mermaid is working, the movie releases maybe six months out. So I would have to get art direction, speculative art direction. Well, I think Gary will look like this, you know? 
kind of thing. But not with Turtles and not with Star Trek. Turtles, <laughs> Turtles there was very little plan. It was just make as much weird stuff as you can as fast <laughs> as you can. And Trek was, uh, Trek was a little more archival, but I remember they would say, here's some figures from this, you know, season one, episode 19 or something. And yeah, but I couldn't really go look it up back then because it wasn't available back then. So of the human characters, cause I know the aliens, it's a whole other world. We'll talk about them in a minute, but of the human characters in Star Trek toys, uh, who was the most challenging for you to really capture their likeness? That is Shatner is hard to do. Hmm. I was actually working on some things here today, well, this week, where he's, he's just, mm, if you take out his personality, he, he, isn't, he doesn't have a classic handsome face. He has kind of a wide nose, and you know, and you, if you put in those characteristics, then the guy will look like the guy or girl, but it's not as appealing. You try and idealize the face a little bit so that it still looks like the piece, but he looks prettier. That's kind of the direction we're trying to go. And remember, I always remind the people, you know, this action figure here with this face, this likeness, isn't a face. It's a little piece of wax. And it's an inch and a half less than that. It's an inch tall. I'm trying to do a likeness of somebody an inch tall. I'm not going for sympathy here. I'll take what I can get. But I'm just saying, sometimes it's hard to do at that size, you know? And you can't, it's not open-ended. You can't just work on a piece forever and ever. Some piece, you have to finish it, write an invoice, do the next one, you know? So some pieces, some are easier than others. Spock's pretty easy because he has all these easily identifiable things about his face and his ears and stuff. So if you get the head shape close, you know, and put those in, it'll look. You know, they'll say, "Yes, that's Spock. I get it." You know, or Bones because he's kind of jowly and stuff. Okay, I get it. It's, it's him. Uh, some of the aliens were a little easier because, you know, there would be an actor under there, but then you add this big nose in the forehead and stuff, then it looked okay. Data, I remember getting a data that I thought looked a lot like data. And when I got it back, there was a comment was the head, his nose is crooked, straighten it, make it smaller. The, the, the actor has a crooked nose and it's a big nose. So when I did that, it was looked more like what they wanted, but it didn't look like the actor anymore. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But it's all what they want. You know, they're not asking me either. So sometimes, though, it would just, like with the Coneheads, they just kind of gave me the assignment and said, you know, bring it back done. Don't make a big deal out of it. (laughs) So I was able to just do the likenesses the way I wanted to. And, you know, because if you blow Jane Curtin's little Conehead sculpture up to human size, it would be horrifying, right? (laughs) It's not going to look like her at all. No. But I got to make it so it's like a gimmick. It's like I got to come up with enough gimmicks in this. It'll make you look like the person. Basically, the approach. Now, I always thought pretty much likenesses, for the most part, were fairly accurate, pretty much one to one, as much as it can be for that time period, especially with toy sculpting. And uh, just to list a few more, I, I want to kind of do my best here to try and identify how many that you worked on specifically, or how many your team worked on. But uh, just I, I know you, you did some work with Morn, you did Goldacott, you did Quark, Vorgon, Dathan. Uh, obviously, you did Gauron from Series One, the first Romulan, first Borg, first Ferengi. Uh, you mentioned the Mogado. Uh, t- I think uh, Tosk was yours as well. Uh, Sarek. You did a version of, uh, I think, Lursa and Baytor. Uh, who else am I missing here? Because I, I want to try and figure out as much as possible who you worked on. Well, well, so far you've got them all right. I did all of those. Oh, Garrick, I also can't mostly, forget Garrick, one of my favorites. You can, you can mostly look at these things and say, I did all of the Ferengi. Because, you know, once I started on that race of people, if you will, then that would I would be the expert. 
sort of. And so I would end up getting all of those. And when they started doing it, I mean, I sent him a list of ones that I wanted to do. So I wanted to do all the Cardassians. I have a, let's see, I have a 94 catalog here. Oh, we're digging deep now. So if you want, I can walk this through. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you're sure. really making a, making a list. Okay, so there's uh, Lieutenant uh, LaForge as a, well, we were calling him as a lizard. But it, it says Tarchinen. It's the one where he goes down to the planet service and changes into a monster. Yes, yes. Then, uh, let's see, we did the Rikers, Barclay. Oh, it's in a Barclay, okay. Uh, Hugh Borg, uh, Worf, of course. Then we did this old guy. What's the old guy? Was that Dr. Noonien Sing? Or Soong, I mean? Yeah, that guy. Dr. Yeah, that Noonien Soong? Yeah, Soong, right. And then there was uh, Q. And then there's this Ensign Rowe. And Spock's dad. I didn't do Pulaski. And I didn't do just Yar. Would that have been uh, David Warshawski who did those characters? Or would that have been Varner or someone else? Varner's Steve Varner. And Warshawski was on my staff. So he didn't, he worked on a lot of them, but he didn't start to finish any of them. Okay. But um, a lot of them. He, he, I think he worked on some of the Star Trek stuff, but his, his style is, is bigger and broader than that. So his style worked really well with turtles, turtle bad guys and stuff. But I'm sure he, did because we were doing tons of these things. <laughs> anyway, there was Klingon Worf. Oh, Ambassador. Anyway, Worf's Klingon girlfriend. I remember doing her. And then the Borg. And the Benzite. And the Vorgon. Yeah, and Dathon. And Locutus. Locutus uh, was an interesting one because uh, Varner Studios did the Picard, but we wanted them to look similar. So they loaned me a Picard casting, and then I put Locutus on top of that. Oh, I was always curious about that, yeah. I, well, Cutis is one of my favorites that, that was made of the entire line, and I always wondered, like, did you guys sculpt a whole new face and, with a complete face and then just add something, or did you just, you know, sculpt as you see it with, you know, the, the eyepiece as part of it, not really worrying about the entire likeness, if that makes sense. But that's interesting, you guys just actually got yeah. the original sculpt and work from that. Yeah, well, it, was, it wasn't cheating as much as it was, let's be as consistent as possible. Yeah. And using the same head is going to get you consistency. Yeah, I'll see. We got another Jordy, and uh, here's the wharf with the splayed legs that nobody likes. But <laughs> I did that, and I didn't do Troy, Data, uh, Riker. I'm trying to remember, right? We might have done Guinan. I can't say for sure. And then Scotty here. I think we did Scotty. Didn't do um, who's the ensign? Crusher. I'd remember if I did Crusher, and I didn't do Crusher. Oh, and there's a big picture of Quark here. It was one of my uh, favorites. Yeah, one of mine also. I'm, I'm wondering also, did you guys or did your studio work on the vehicles or playsets at all? Oh, I'd have to say yes. I'm trying. I'm not, nothing's coming to mind though. Well, the big spaceships and stuff. I think those were all done in Hong Kong. Mm, okay, also all the vehicle type things. Those were outsourced overseas. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let's see. In Deep Space Nine, there's just Goldicott, Morn, and Quark. The only ones I did on that page. Oh, and then, oh, okay. But there's also Quark, Quark's brother, Tosk, Hunter of Tosk, Vash. Vash? No, I didn't do her. Varner is a more classically trained sculptor. He's more, you know, he went to school and everything. Because <laughs> I never went to school. I went to work right after high school. So he would tend to get the ladies because you want somebody with a more classical eye. More anatomy, you know, 
I did some ladies, but he would do most of them. Oh no! But I do remember doing this uh, grand Nagus with all the wrinkles in his ears. Ah uh, yes, I'm I'm proud to say I, I and I'm wondering if this is yours now. I, I actually own the uh, hand painted hard copies that I'm thinking must have came from your studio. Really? Wow, good one. Uh, I'm a big fan of that figure. I love all the Frangies, but I'm, I'm I feel quite happy to have the Grand Nagus as part of my collection. <laughs> yeah, plus the the actor made it funny too. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of boring to be a Ferengi. So, Scott, as I mentioned, I did talk to a lot of Star Trek toy collectors. I've got a bunch of their questions, so I'm going to kind of let them guide, I think, the rest of the interview as we move along here, because they were super excited to hear I was talking to you today. So let me throw one at you, in fact, that I think was the most popular question I had among everybody. Uh, I'm just going to mention a few people who asked this, and that would have been Wesley Wilson, whose collection was actually featured in the Toys That Made Us episode about Star Trek toys, uh, James Keen, Lineal Johnson, there was many others, uh, and they all wanted to know... In the Series 1 TNG figures, why did Riker have the tear on his shirt and his leg? They seem to want to think... Uh, I think other toy lines were starting to sell battle-damaged versions of their their characters. So they decided they needed to have a battle-damaged one. So they just said, battle-damage him a little bit. And the, and the figure was finished. I mean, was done. So, like I was telling you before... <laughs> tell me to change something that's already finished and approved, I'm not going to change it very much. Yeah. No, I just put in a little battle damage. That's all it is. Not a very good story, but that's the reason. <laughs> well, that's the truth, though. I mean, it would be years till we actually got another Riker in that uniform, I believe, that was more uh, traditional, you know, stand-up style figure. But, yeah, that's, and that's bugged me for a lifetime as well, so I'm glad I got the answer to it, though. Yeah. The, um, the marketing department would make these decisions without really thinking things through sometimes. Which is so always surprising because that was their job. Their job was to decide what they want and tell us, and we would make it and give it back to them. That was the idea. I remember when I was working at Tomy, they were having trouble coming up with ways to decide what things should sell and what things shouldn't sell. They came back and they said, and remember, this is before Turtles, they said, uh, green toys don't sell, don't use green anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine that? <laughs> I mean, that's like telling a guy who's working on your car not to use the half-inch wrench because you don't think that was a good one or something. I mean, <laughs> what a stupid thing to tell us to do. And then, as I say, just a few years later, green was the only color anything should be. If it had a big grimace and it was green, it would sell. So I've got another question uh, regarding Series 1. This is about the Data figure. Uh, I'm going to throw my question to it as well. So Daryl Clonch wanted to know why the Data figure, when his phaser accessory had a little handle on it, whereas other figures were able to hold the weapons. And on that note, I'm curious as well about the uh, Android part in his forearm, too, and how you guys decided to include that as part of it. The second question would be, we're trying to make it as interesting as possible. As I was saying, they're just guys in pajamas. they got to keep yep. coming up with things different. I think that other uh, phaser, that was just a phaser that we found in some other reference. We wanted to include it, just something to be different, and he had to hold it in a different way. Again, for more of a practical reason than a thought-through reason. And remember, I would do the sculpture, I would make a mold, I would cast it in resin, and they would send it off to Hong Kong. When I say Hong Kong, I mean the entire country of Hong Kong. I don't actually know if it was interior China or Singapore or someplace. I just call it all Hong Kong. And then when they were tooling, they would make changes left and right. But you couldn't blame on me. And a lot of times they would re-sculpt it. If you look close, it, would, it had been re-sculpted. Because I was doing these one-to-one. The first four bad guys, I think, we did twice up. And they panogrammed them down to size to keep all the detail. Yeah, when we say twice up for listeners who don't know about toys, we're talking about how the mold is based, or how the piece is basically double the size of what it would be when it's actually made into production, the toy that you would play with at home. Yeah, so I'm doing a four-inch figure, eight inches tall, 
and uh, and I make a hard copy of that, and then I send it off to the tool maker, and then he pantographs it down to size. It was a lot of trouble, and I think after that they started just re-sculpting it to size, and then using that, you know, visually looking at the upsize. And when when we got wind of that, we said, well, the hell with that. We'll do them same size, so at least we know what we're making, uh, which is good for everything except for the actual sculpture, because you know, sculpting the fingers that small, you know. It means it's not going to be as good a sculpture as it could have been. But on the other hand, it's a toy, man. Just make it look good and go to the next one. Basic issue. So Jason Wildman wanted to know, why was there a stylistic change between the first wave, which was a little bit more cartoony in terms of the likenesses, or more stylized, uh, whereas the later waves became a little bit more realistic in their proportion and their sculpts? Well, I mean, I'd have to, I'd have to blame that just on getting better at the at the craft as you go. Yeah. Well, the idea was always to make the license look as, as good as possible. And we started out kind of, you know, more extreme faces, you know, Worf is kind of shouting and, and all that. And then they decided to calm it down and go, because I think by the second year, they, they knew they had a hit. Yeah. So they tried to make it more appeal to the lowest common denominator buyer, which means you end up dumbing all the shapes and stuff down. And the other thing was, you know, not to say it again, but Varner Studios then started doing a lot more of the likenesses of the humans. And he is a more studied sculptor than me. I'm more impulsive, I guess, or something. I don't know. I tend to just make it up as I go, and he tends to plan it out better. So I think the... In the first ones, we were just faking it with the armature, too, the interior. You have to, before you start sculpting, you have to make a kind of a, a skeleton where the arms and legs and neck meet the body. And you have to put a, a hard plastic piece in there so you can keep returning it to the same place. If you just did it in solid wax or even worse, just in solid clay, the holes would erode out and the pins wouldn't go back where they're supposed to be and all that. So you have to do an armature. And we got much better at doing armatures after the first year because we were just making it up. But then we started standardizing things after that. That might be why they looked a little different too. So Tom Snippen had a bunch of questions, but the one that uh, I'm curious about is uh, did Playmates ever consider updating the Voyager and Deep Space Nine figures to their looks in later seasons? And I don't think you did the Voyager figures, but you did a bunch of the DS9 figures. So was there ever any talk of them being redone to have, basically have their outfits be reflected as what they looked like or their faces reflected what they looked like later on the show? Well, you know, hmm, I'd have to say I'm, you know, an independent contractor and I'm not going to those mo- meetings where they make those decisions. So I really don't know why they did this or that. The... As far as I could tell, there were no real science fiction or toy fans working at the toy company. It was just us. So when it came to some of the smaller details, we would just put them in because we know they were supposed to be there. They weren't really directing us to do it because they really didn't. I'm trying not to say they didn't care because, of course, they cared. But, you know, if they're not a Star Trek fan, you don't really know what's important and what's not. I don't know if that answers your question. Oh, that's right? perfect, actually, yeah. Yeah, that's first the answer I expected for it. And uh, just as a preface to a lot of folks who ask similar kind of questions, uh, there's a lot of questions that would have basically been uh, kind of in a different part of the toy making world. That wouldn't necessarily be what Scott works on. So for folks who are asking things about like, why wasn't this character made? Or why was this? Why was this, you know, uh, marketed a certain way? That's stuff that would have not been things that he worked on. So, uh, you know, again, apologies to any folks who ask those kinds of questions. That's why you're not going to hear those answered today or asked today. Um, <clears throat> but I do have one that a lot of people did ask in general. Maybe you know about this. Uh, were there any figures that you worked on that got far along, maybe they had themselves even you know, a final product ready, uh, but that were ultimately canceled? 
Hmm. Well, I would have to say yes. Uh, not sure which ones didn't get made. I mean, you know, after they leave me, it's five, six months the earliest before they start coming back again. And they don't send them to me. I mean, if I want to see them, i got to make a special request or i got to go to Toys R Us and find them. Otherwise, I don't know if they made them or not, to be honest with you. Uh, of course, for Toy Fair, you know, the big trade show in New York. Yep. Go there every year. Okay. Well, we would do painted samples of everything for Toy Fair. That was always the big focus every year, of course, because that's where you were showing them. So a lot of times I was, well, always I was painting resin castings, but sometimes I was painting rough resin resin castings, or sometimes I was even painting a clay, you know, if if we had started too late to get the process all the way to the finish line. But just because they were showing it didn't mean they were going to make it. And even if they showed it that way, uh, the paint jobs would often change after they left me. Because, you know, me and my group, we were always painting them up to make them look as good as possible, <laughs> whether it was a, whether they could afford to paint it the way we did it or not. So a lot of the ones you see at Toy Fair are, are, are optimistically designed. Mm. <laughs> but I don't know why they would cancel one and not another. I don't think they did that a lot with Star Trek, to be honest. Um, because I don't, think, I don't think they would look at it and say, oh, we'll sell more of this one than that one. You know, I think they looked at it as a total thing. So. Yeah, it seems like it was like one of the earliest toy lines that kind of hit kids and adults and knew how to get the collector market along with people actually playing with the toys. And, uh, you know, so just, that's one of the cool things about Playmates from that era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking we did for – it wasn't that they wouldn't do that because in other lines like Earthworm Jim, for example, uh, they didn't – there were a bunch of them that we made that they didn't make or they decided to remake later with somebody else. I did a queen slug for a butt that was a real scary-looking monster. Yes. And after we were all done – they decided, oh, no, it needs to be a, a cute, cartoony one, you know. Or with the Skeleton Warriors, we were well into working the, doing the second season when they canceled the line. So there were a bunch of them that were made but never, that were sculpted but were never produced, but for that reason, you know. Well, I've seen one Star Trek figure. It's actually on your website. I think it's now currently in the hands of a private collector. It's of a Klingon character who's basically holding a giant sword. I don't know if that ever got produced. Uh, do you know anything oh, about yeah, that? Oh, yeah, you know, I, I know the one you mean. That that piece isn't really part of a usual, usual line because it's tall. Yeah. It's probably maybe six or seven inches tall. It's a real big figure. And one of the things about it was that I cut the waist at an odd angle. So when he swings that big sword, it does kind of a interesting... doesn't just go side to side. It kind of swoops up, you know, does more damage, I guess. I've always... Uh, whenever anybody brought it up, I would always say, yeah, I don't think that was made, and I... I have since heard people tell me that it was produced, but I've never seen it. I mean, I, yeah, I, I can't recall either. It feels like it might have been part of that. Uh, there was a, a line that had Star Trek figures actually doing action things. So I'm going to double check that also. I don't think it was made either, but uh, what do I know? you got to remember that the toy company is a capitalist for-profit thing. And if something isn't selling, they're not going to make it. Yeah. And and, and if they, uh, you know, to, to your, early, your earlier question about the costuming and stuff, I mean, they would look at that and say, well, we'll be spending some money to redo this costume. You know, are we going to make that money back? And they, they apparently decided, no, we're not. That's why they didn't do it, really. So these days, there's a lot of retro lines coming back. There's now re-releases of Kenner's old-style real Ghostbusters figures. We know Hasbro's been doing their Star Wars retro with three and three-quarter-inch figures. Uh, and Christopher Warden wanted to ask your thoughts about reviving this as, reviving Star Trek figures as a retro line, either re-releasing the original sculpts or uh, basically touching up, maybe changing things from the original sculpts. What, what are your thoughts on that? And aside from what Playmates would want to say or do, what would be your personal thought on that? 
well. I think that the, the franchise, as they call it, is real strong. And I think they should 100% start making new ones. Now, I'm a sculptor for hire, so I'd be lying if I said, yeah, let's just retool the existing ones. Uh, so from a practical standpoint, I would say, yeah, let's, let's sculpt a new line and be as, be as faithful to the first line as we can be, but using the things that I know how to do better now. I mean, I'm a better sculptor now than I was then, so I'm going to want to do it. And there were pieces that were never done that would be fun to fill in, you know, a salt monster or something. And never famously never made the salt monster. Yeah, that actually leads me to another question, which uh, we kind of discussed earlier, the, the figures you were campaigning to work on. But James Bingham yeah. wanted to ask more about the figures that you wanted to do but never got a chance to do or weren't allowed to make. Well, well, that would be one of them, the salt monster. I, I really wanted one. to do... I really wanted to do Pike in the chair, and I oh, think yeah. they did end up doing that, but I didn't get it. It was, like I say, a lot of these ideas came up later, and I was on to doing Zorro or something. I don't remember, but I mean, I was really greedy in the beginning. Took a lot of work, hired some people to help, uh, you know, really knock some of these things out. And then at some point, I said, you know, I'd really rather focus and not be so, so scattered. So at that point, you know, and I like doing the cartoony stuff as much as the Star Trek stuff. So I would end up doing fewer Star Treks and more Earthworm Gyms or something like that. I do remember saying we should do more girls. <laughs> the girl in the Mogato story we should do. We should do the green dancing lady. And they did end up doing that later. Yep. But I would have liked to have done more of that. And then some of the really oddball, weird ones. Anyway, there were, yeah, there were some, but they're not coming to mind because I'm old. <laughs> That's all right. So as we get closer to the end of the interview, actually, uh, Josh Weiselberg had a good question. Uh, and you know, again, this is probably playing more for like the Playmates marketing people or the execs in the company, but uh, what, what do you attribute to the market decline of the Star Trek figures? Well, I don't know. You mentioned that they were, they were trying to sell them to kids and to adult collectors, and I think that was a good idea. But at some point, the kids grew out of the Star Trek figures, so that part of the, the buying possibility was gone. Now you just have the collectors. So there are a lot more kids than there are collectors. That's for sure. Mm, that's true. And then kind of their focus was always on trying to playmate, was always on you know, getting the next big thing going. And Star Trek kind of flattened out. So they stopped adding to it and started trying to do water babies or some of the other doll lines they were doing. So they think that contributed to it too. And then I, I'd have to say that they kind of took the the fun and the imagination of it out of it when they started really making them universal poses and everything. I mean, if you compare the first line, weirdly posed as they were, with the last line, or one of the last lines, I mean, they just aren't as alive. You know? Of course, I didn't sculpt them, so that must be it. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> but, I don't know. They just, they're just oh, look, they look too overthought or something. Mm, I don't know. Okay. They could be more fun. So of all these Star Trek figures that you worked on, who's your favorite and who is your least favorite? Oh, God. Hmm. Well, you mentioned there were two guys. One one guy was named, he was an alien named Tosk. Yes. And there was another guy who was, I forget his name, but he was hunting him. And I always yeah, thought he was actually people... literally called Hunter of Tosk. <laughs> Not a very creative name. Oh, That's okay. Who was. Yep. Hunter of Tosk. Well, there you go. Anyway, I always really liked the way those two pieces came out. I did them all myself. And the Tosk guy, especially, if you look at him, he has... His poses and proportions are just right. And and I came up with this really interesting texture to go all over him because he was wearing kind of this chain mail kind of suit. I just thought that came out great. And then with the 
Hunter of Tosk. Uh, he, his stance looks pretty good. His, his outfit isn't all that fascinating, so you better make sure your pose and your, and your volumes are right, and it's, in this case, they were. And then the, uh, I made a helmet that fit over his head, and I, I, always, I don't know why I say that, but I always like it when I, mean, I get a helmet that fits on there right, because the, the proportions of these figures, if you blow them up next to a human person, they're not human proportion. The heads are bigger, arms are longer, the hands are bigger, you know? Yeah. That was just the look we established going in. So whenever you could do that with the big giant head and get a helmet that fits and have the helmet look good, you know, it's quite the, the feat of skill. It's not anything anybody's going to notice. I'm the only one who's going to know. I'm sure the kids lose the helmets immediately. Well, I wasn't one of those kids. I always kept mine in good condition, so... Oh, you kept I, all I, your... I also appreciate a good helmet. Oh, see, and I'm thinking of one that I just didn't like. Um, one of the things about the Star Trek figures that I just didn't like, and it was because of the, the established parameters going in, was that the pants always looked too tight at the crotch. <laughs> they always looked like they were wearing their pants that were just somebody else's, and they shrunk, and they too... And you can't really get around that, because if you... Because the hips are based on a circle on a circle. You don't want to have a lot of overhang, you know, when you turn the legs. Right. So it has to be a circle on a circle. So if it's a circle on a circle and then the, the V of the crotch is the shape that it is, then you kind of back into it and you end up with that looks too tight in the pants area. And I kind of never minded that when it was on the humans. I don't know why. But for some reason, the Klingons wearing pants that just look too tight just never worked for me. So... But I didn't say anything out loud to anybody because I knew you can't change it. You know, there's nothing you can do. You've got to accept it. Well, i got to tell you the reason why they look so tight is because they really were. And that's one of the complaints we've heard on this show from actors who had to wear those uniforms is they were usually oh, pretty yeah, darn yeah. tight. The real ones probably were, yeah. So today there might be some folks who are listening to this episode who are perhaps amateur toy makers or want to know how to break into the toy business and perhaps the artistic side, whether it's designing or sculpting a figure. Uh, what advice would you have for them to get into this field? Hmm. I'm trying to think of a way to, to answer that and sound optimistic. But um, a few things happened uh, since I started. Most of the toy sculpture was done in America because the folks in Asia were good at manufacturing, but they weren't good at sculpture at all. I mean, they were terrible. So uh, to get a good sculpture done, you had to do it stateside by somebody. Um, so there was, a, there was work there. And the second thing was uh, that freehand sculpture was the only kind available. And the last thing is that kids played with toys. Nowadays, kids play with video games. Don't need any sculpture to do that. The folks in Asia have learned how to sculpt pretty well, and they do it. They throw the sculpture in for free to get the tooling work. Mm, wow. it's, hard, it, it's hard to, you know, bid against free. Uh, and the last thing is, of course, 3D printing. That's uh, a lot of people think they can produce a a viable action figure on a computer screen. Now, I'm a freehander. I stayed a freehander because that's what I want to do. It isn't that I hate 3D sculpture because I'm fine with it. It has its place. If you gave me a job to do a bunch of cars with, with characters in the driver's seat, I would have somebody print the cars, and then I would sculpt the characters. I mean, it's a, it's a specialty like anything else, like hiring a good painter or a doll designer or something. So if you're going to get into the toy world, you would have to know how to, uh, you would have to at least know how to use three-dimensional printing, you know, Rhino or Freeform or whatever you want to use. And even if you didn't do it yourself, you would have to know how to direct it. Because nowadays, 
So I finish a sculpture, I mold it and I cast it, and I'm ready to ship it. And the, the owner decides he wants to make a change. I have to re-sculpt and remold, which is going to take a week or more, depending on the change. But if it's digital, you just open your file, you make the change, and you close the file. So you have to know how to do that. The other thing is, if you're going to be a designer, you would have to have something on the ball. You can't just say you want to do it. In other words, you have to have a skill level that matches what you're trying to do. Because I've had people say, I want you to do this sculpture, and they send me a drawing, and I'm like, I can't read that. way. What? You know? I'm not really one to critique somebody else's work, but it has to be usable. So if I was going to go into the toy world, I'd, I'd learn how to do things on the computer screen. But... You know, if I was going to do that, since you asked, I would also learn how to do stuff freehand like I do, because that would, that's going to set you apart. If you can actually use a pencil and paper, um, that's going to set you apart. I know that, you know, I've had folks on staff who could only barely start on, on a pad of paper, and then they would have to scan it and continue on in the computer world. And the fact is, there's a, there's a place for everything, and so you'd want to learn how to do all those different things. You would want to have some kind of glancing uh, understanding of the process that I use. But mostly it's dead. It's gone. It's not going to be back. It would be good to know about it, but it's not going to be back. Mostly you're going to do it on the computer screen. You're going to get it approved by the boss, and then you're going to email it to you know, Asia or Singapore or someplace, and they're going to make it. Uh, I don't want to sound depressed. About oh, it. That's true. Yeah, the toy industry has changed. The trends have changed what kids are buying, and the collector's market for adults has drastically changed even in just the approach of how companies make them versus how they used to be with the Star Trek line. You know, yeah, the Star Trek line yeah. we talked about, you were saying you didn't like to reuse things. And for the most part, uh, with the exception of later human characters, Starfleet characters, they're all completely different tools for each toy. Whereas today you get like the Mattel elite WWE figures, which I collect also, and you'll see the same three or four body types used for hundreds of figures. So, oh yeah. yeah. You know, things have changed sure. in just that part of it. And, Trends, sculpting, cost, it's, it's a very different environment from what was in the 90s, which is really like peak action figure time. Well, yes. They used to always say that if you saw a piece in cast and glow in the dark, that means the line is about to die. Mm. They're trying to use the same tools, you know, but, but make a new toy. And glow in the dark is kind of the jump the shark thing. <laughs> well, it's true. That, Trek actually kind of did that. They had their uh, transporter lineup, which is basically recycling yeah. a lot of the figures, but they had half of them now in the clear resin, so that they, they were about to be beamed up. Yeah, I have one of those here, as a matter of fact, with all the sparkles in his legs. Yep. Um, you worked on those also? Well, sort of. I mean, since they've been reusing them. That's right. Technically, you did. <laughs> Technically, I did, yeah. As for yourself, though, what toys do you collect? Are you a collector as well? Uh, not really. I used to like to collect oversized uh, vinyl figures. You know, I got a real big Spider-Man, a real big Hulk and stuff. I mean, they're like 15 inches tall. And that was kind of fun because they were oversized and because I didn't do them. I don't really collect the things I do. I'm not like the guy who plays Kylo Ren who doesn't like to watch himself. I'm not, I'm not like that. I just, <laughs> it's just more fun for me to have something to look at that I didn't stare at as it was being made. But the answer is, that I guess not. I used to collect illustration art, art produced by the old 50s guys, Virgil Finley and Hannes Bach and those guys. Not anymore, though. Um, mm. It's gotten too expensive to do. But yeah, past that, I'm, I'm more in the selling stage than the collecting stage. Now, and now I'm moving the shop from where I am now to my home in my garage. Time to cut down on those collections, my friend. So what are you working on these days? I mean, with, right now we're in the middle of the COVID-19 outbreak, and we've been speaking with a lot of actors. That's clearly affected their world. But 
Uh, I imagine for you do, it's not necessarily as drastic of a change. So uh, what, what projects is Scott Henze well, doing these the days? Well, from the work standpoint, um, I could still do it, right? Because I don't interact with anybody. Yep. I'm only a block and a half down the road, so I figured it was safe for me to come in and keep working. But my clients disappeared. So, I mean, because I mm-hmm. used to do, well, I'd like to say I will be again, but I used to do a whole lot of work for a company called Linux Ceramics. They're out of Bristol, Pennsylvania. And they're mostly just ceramic ware characters. My mother would call dust collectors. Oh, my mother's got plenty of those dust collectors, too. Yeah, okay. Well, so I was basically doing uh, all of their peanuts and Charlie Brown's Snoopies and stuff. And then uh, their Disney pieces, Mickey Mouse's and Donald Duck's and stuff. And um, I was happy to do it. Uh, but, you know, Disney's getting harder and harder to please lately for some reason. I mean, they're telling me I don't know how to do Mickey Mouse. And I've been doing Mickey Mouse for 35 years. <laughs> and every time I try to make it look a little bit better. So now all of a sudden, but, you know, the whoever's art directing out there at Disney, they went through a personnel change and now everybody's got a new style. And I understand that, you know. And the Peanuts, uh, you know, the, the gang... So I've done Sally and um, Charlie Brown and Lucy Van Pelt many, many times now. And that's kind of fun. But I'm not even molding them or casting them or painting them. I'm just doing the sculpture and then putting it in a box and send it into Bristol and they make the molds because it's ceramic ware, so they don't need a painted sample. You know? And they're not going to a trade show, so they don't need samples. So what does the Lennox work? And then there's kind of odd, odd people. <laughs> Contact me looking for work. There's a guy. He has a line called. He's a, has a company called Horror Ornaments. Horror Ornaments. And he's on the website, on the interwebs, and he sells Halloween themed Christmas ornaments and decoration. Oh, that sounds fun. Yeah, that's fun. So he said, "Let's do a little trouble in Big China." And, you know, the different characters and the monsters and stuff, and and then he's going to produce them in like, resin, I guess. Oh, wow. And so Christmas tree ornaments. There was another guy who had a similar company, uh, Middle of Beyond, I think it was called. And uh, I was doing the same kind of thing for him, except he's producing them in glass, you know, the traditional glass Christmas tree ornaments. And some figurines and stuff. I did a big Krampus. You know who Krampus is? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did a big Krampus for him. That was fun. So there's those weird jobs. And then I still get work from this fella who runs a company called Ruby's Forum and they make costumes, you know, Christmas, Halloween costumes. So he'll think up, he's a great guy, he'll think up something out of the blue and he'll just call me up and go, I need I need a zombie rat. I need it six inches tall. I need it by Friday. <laughs> and I go, okay. So I, <laughs> and that's it. That's all the direction I get. So I do it. I take a picture of him. If he says that's fine or, you know, make his eye bigger or something. And then I mold it, cast, paint it and ship it. And he just comes up with the weirdest ones possible. He calls up and he says, do an upside-down skull mask. I go, what does that mean? He goes, well, the mouth is on the top, and the top of the head is on your chin, and you're still looking out through the eye holes, and your head face looks upside down. I was like, wow, that sounds like a great idea. So I do that, send it off. There you go. All right. Um, so those are interesting jobs. They aren't really toys, though. Um, I got contacted by a fellow in France believe it or not. Hmm. And back in the day, I wouldn't take work from people who weren't in the country because if they decided not to pay me, I, what could I do? Yeah. <laughs> but, but now we have PayPal. So 
guy in France contacts me. He says he's a big Star Trek, uh, I'm sorry, Turtles fan, and he wants me to do some turtle bad guys that he has designed. So I have to remind him that I, this is what I do for a living. you got to pay me. And he says, oh, yeah, sure. But I said, okay, well, you're in France. <laughs> so you got to send me the money now at PayPal. And boom, there's the money. Huh. So I sculpted a bad guy. It looked like an owl. And I just finished up uh, a bad guy called Voodoo Wolf. Ah, oh, that sounds interesting. And yeah, it's a really interesting character. Um, and he has given me permission to show them. So when I get some pictures, I'll put them on my Instagram. Yeah, and for folks who are wondering, what is your Instagram? What is my Instagram? Um, Scott, my middle name is Timothy. Don't tell anybody. So it's Scott T. Henzi. I guess that's it. Yep. So if anybody wants to see the work that he's got or anything that he's selling as he goes along, go ahead, check it out. Scott T. Henzi on Instagram. Yeah, that's uh, one word. Uh, so, Scott, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Hmm. I don't know if you've ever even considered yourself part of it before, but, you know, in my mind, you are an absolute celebrity in this world because you have pretty much, you know, put your toys in the hands of many, many kids. And that's helped shape our imaginations just as much as the show has. So you are a part of the universe. Wow. Well, thank you for saying that. Well, it is it is cool. Uh, back then, I, I thought it was fun that uh, I was doing this work. I was doing this work that I loved, and I get to meet some interesting and fascinating people. So I did feel like part of a world. Personally, I'm kind of a stay in my cave and, you know, don't knock on my door, kind of old man of the <laughs> mountain kind of guy. Uh, not at all. So I never, <laughs> I never really thought of myself as part of any kind of world. But then as I got older, as you say, I started hearing from people who will say, yeah, I, I used to play with your toy. It meant a lot to me. And, I, you know, it's a little bit surprising. and It's very flattering. So that's probably the best part of it all is that I did get to work on some pieces that I really liked and work on some with some folks that I really liked. And it has it has legs, as they say. Down the road, people are still talking about it like you and me right now. Yeah, definitely. So I would have to say that that was my, my best part. But one of the best parts, well, is a smaller one, but when I was working, doing the Happy Meals and the McDonald's, I mean, and the Playmate stuff, there was a lot of money coming in. And when I needed a specialty, like a face painter or something, I could go hire the best one I could find because I could afford them. And I always thought that was one of the coolest things because then I had I could work with some really spectacular artists and designers that I wouldn't normally have even met, let alone been able to work with. Uh, and play, and Star Trek was one of the one of the big ones. Yeah, those are very high quality figures, and I could see all the love that you and your team put into it. it really shows to this day still how much effort and how much passion there was for this project. Well, thank you very much. So, Scott, thank you so much today for chatting with us, talking to us all about Star Trek toys, Ninja Turtle toys, everything else. Uh, you know, as someone who's really interested in the process, I found this to be super fascinating, and I'm pretty sure our listeners did as well. So uh, thank you so much today for your time, and again, for all of your work on really being a big part of my childhood, because I played with everything you made, Earthworm Jim, Trek, uh, Skeleton Warriors, Toxic Crusaders. You know, you were a part of my childhood in so many ways. So it's been, uh, you know, you're, you're a rock star to talk to you today, basically. That's how I'm... That's why I'm babbling endlessly here, because it just means that much to chat with you today. Well, thank you very much for saying all those nice things. It's been very flattering. Uh, it was nice to hear that you like my work and that all of your listeners uh, had all those interesting questions. It was great to hear from you. I'd love to talk to you again whenever you feel like it. Yes, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Uh, be safe and be well. And of course, okay. live long and prosper. <laughs> yes, indeed. Okay, bye-bye. So that was our chat today with Scott Henze, who is absolutely the Bob Ross of action figure sculpting. He's so soft-spoken, but has years of knowledge that he was extremely generous with, so I'm very grateful I got to spend some time with him for this episode. 
Our conversation was definitely one of the longer episodes we had here on Trek Untold. And believe it or not, we discussed even more things off the air, which included a lot more technical talk about mold making and other parts of the process to make toys that I'm a little obsessed with. I love talking about the craft with him, and I hope to do more episodes like this one with other folks who worked on Star Trek toys. And as for Mr. Henzi, on this podcast, we've interviewed a lot of celebrities, a lot of actors, folks who are very recognizable at conventions. But the point of this podcast has always been to spotlight the folks who don't really ever get the spotlight. And to me, Scott is an absolute rock star. And really, we should be very grateful that he's one of the people that's really shaped a lot of our childhoods, a lot of our imaginations through his work on those action figure lines. So once again, to Scott Henzi, thank you so much for what you did helping my childhood and so many other folks out there who are listening today to help us expand our imagination and our minds. Action figures were not a big part of the Star Trek universe in the show. In fact, the only time I can think of any characters owning or even mentioning an action figure was Quark on Deep Space Nine with his Marauder Mo figures. Sadly, he removed them from the packaging, which immediately devalued them. Model sets were often used to buff up ship battles and were also used for display cases, like the one in the Observation Lounge of the Enterprise-E in Star Trek Nemesis. But the Playmate Star Trek figures actually did end up on TV a few times. In the Star Trek Voyager episode Scorpion, pieces from the Borg action figures were used to create a pile of corpses, with only slight modifications to them. In the episode Dark Frontier, young Annika Hansen is playing with a model of the Borg cube that was also a Playmates vehicle, once again with very small adjustments made to it. And if you collected these toys in the late 90s, you may remember getting a little packet inside with a contest that you could appear on an episode of Star Trek. Well, there actually was a winner, and uh, I'll save that discussion for another day, because hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll be able to chat with him sometime, too. But if you're out there still trying to win that contest, I I hate to break it to you, but you're a few decades late. If there's any Star Trek toy collectors listening today, feel free to hit us up on social media and post some pics of your collections. Make sure to tag us so we can take a look, and even better, and more so, I want to see the holy grails of your display shelves. So go ahead and send us some pictures. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this show, and if you can, leave a review and rating. We would appreciate it very much if you did. You can also follow us on social media. Just look for Trek Untold on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you there, and of course, we'd like to hear your thoughts about this week's episode. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can check out patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn how you can keep our ship operating at full power. And you can also check out some of our merchandise at teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. This has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold.